Hi, everybody. Welcome to Agency Unfiltered. I'm your host, Kevin Dunn, and Agency Unfiltered is a biweekly web series and podcast that interviews agency owners from around the world about agency operations, growth, and scale. Episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts, and you can find our videos and full transcripts on agencyunfiltered.com. To kick things off, we have Mike Skeen, managing partner of Salted Stone, and he joins the show to discuss his experiences in evolving as a leader alongside the maturation of his agency. He recollects what it's meant to grow, pivot, and reassign his responsibilities in moments of transition, the important inflection points throughout Salted Stone's history, the patterns he saw, and how he thinks about reactivity to proactiveness today. Agency Unfiltered, filming remotely from the Dunn residence, starts right now. Hey, Mike, welcome to Agency Unfiltered. Thanks for uh, dialing in today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, to finally uh, be, uh, be on the show. Um, I've seen a lot of, uh, my, my role models within the agency ecosystem present, and, and I'm glad you're finally scraping the bottom of the barrel and getting to salted stone. <laughs> yeah. You know, eventually I was going to run out of folks and just had to decide on, yeah, all right, maybe it's time for salted stone to come in. Uh, I'm just kidding. You're on the short list. Uh, psyched to, to talk with you. Um, I think, uh, the discussion at hand here based on on some of the pre-show notes and discussions we've had, I think it's going to be um, something on a, on uh, on the mind for a number of different agencies and partners. Uh, and so I won't uh, speak on your behalf, but I think um, what's worth getting your perspective on is evolving as a leader while your agency matures, grows, scales, and evolves as well. Um, and so maybe the best place to start um when you say evolve as a leader, like what, what does that mean to you? Uh, and how do you know when it's time to evolve? Yeah, sure. And I think um, if, I, if I had to try and, and define it, it's, uh, it's sort of when, um, when there's an invitation um, through the, uh, the, the circumstances or the events um, that you're encountering as a leader, when I think when there's an invitation to, um, to take a material step forward, a step that's less sort of a difference in degree versus what it was that you were doing yesterday. Um, but, uh, but maybe, a, you know, a difference in substance. Um, and, and, and so I, I, I don't think those are uh, those types of steps um, by definition, I think are, are less frequent. They're less common. Um, they happen at key inflection points at key stages of, of agency growth. Um, so it's not something that I think uh, uh, agency, leaders or organizational leaders period um, need to be uh, thinking about day in and day out. Um, I think the the circumstances and the events um, sort of converge um, into these key critical moments or, or themes or patterns that develop. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that's the time that the, the leader of the agency um, needs to be prepared um, to, to take a step forward, perhaps into um, unknown territory, uncharted waters, and um, and be ready to to exercise leadership in in a, in a new way. Um, uh, does that answer your question? It absolutely does. And and let me ask you this as a quick follow up. Obviously, there's no one size fits all here. But how frequently do you think those 
you mentioned uh, the inflection points or, or milestones or convergence of, of actions. How, how frequently does that come up? At least based on your experience. I think for, for us, I think it's probably safe to say that, um, that we've kind of, we've hit one of those, I'd say probably every four years on average, right. In, in, at least at salted stone, um, Right. It may be different depending on your business. Right. If, if you're getting outside capital, if, uh, if if you have a mandate from investors to grow, to grow fast, grow, grow heavy, grow rapidly. Um, right. You, that, that may be a, a, a different experience. But for us, uh, with our kind of organic uh, growth process, um, you know, we, we got started in 2008. We um, which I'd say was it kind of a key inflection point, kind of the, the inaugural leadership sure. milestone. Um, and then from 2008 to 2012, um, we, we grew organically kind of within a certain mode. And then in 2012, uh, one of our first inflection points corresponded with becoming HubSpot partners that really opened some new vistas for us that, uh, that, are, that we previously, um, you know, didn't have our, didn't have our sights on. Um, and that required then a transition, uh, from an agency perspective, a transition for me, um, as the, the leader of the agency from 2012 to 2016, my role as a leader um, was different. In 2016, through a couple of key hires, I'd say that my, my role transitioned again, where more of the responsibilities that I had on my plate historically started to shift off of my plate onto some, some key members of the team. Um, and then now here in 2020, uh, we're going through a, a, a similar transition, a similar inflection point. So for us, I think it's been um, roughly every four years, right? And there are minor milestones along the way that require some adaptation potentially. Sure. Um, but for us, that, those seem to be the kind of the key cycle points. No, that's helpful context. Um, you mentioned really quickly at one of the points, maybe it was 2016, but you had to transition some responsibilities off your plate. That actually kind of tees up my next question, which is what, when the, when the, point is there when we meet that milestone, that inflection point, what does evolution look like? Is it a transition or reimagining of uh, responsibilities as an agency leader? Yeah. You know, I think um, I'm going to probably answer this question in, in a more slightly long-winded sort of way. Um, but, um, but, but for what I try and do, and your mileage may vary, right? Everyone's perspective is slightly different, but um, I, um, I kind of intellectually have accepted or acknowledge um, what I'll call sort of a, the, the spirituality of events. Um, and without reading more into that than is necessary, all, all that I intend to communicate um, through that phrase is that um, there's, uh, there's kind of a message behind um, the, the particulars of, of the day in and day out. Um, and, uh, and, and so when I think about it from that standpoint, um, this, the simplest way, if I can, um, like run the risk of, 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 uh, you know, speaking in a, in a, in a secular environment using terms that don't typically, um, Im are, are typically employed in a secular environment, right? Like I believe that, uh, that like, say God communicates to people through the events of their life. And then we communicate back through our choices in response to those events, Right. So that is ultimately how I think God and humans, practically speaking, enter into dialogue. God provides the events and the circumstances. Right. We choose how we respond to those events and circumstances. And ultimately, that interplay um, is where where the dialogue occurs, where the interaction between uh, human human beings and, and God occurs. And um, 
in in in, in that uh, you know r- relatively simple. Uh, concept and one that I don't necessarily, uh, you know, I, I don't think everyone's going to buy into it. Um, but uh, but that's sort of my mindset. And so when I think about the the function of a transition um, and what that tends to look like and how that tends to play out, generally speaking, there are events that occur that are bigger than than something that I can control. Right. Event like I, I've been taking steps perhaps towards a direction, but then there are kind of macro external events that are that loom larger than um, than than any of kind of the micro decisions that I'm making on a day in and day out basis. And those macro events are demanding some sort of response. Right. Um, and uh, and so the what I like about that general philosophy is the macro events are kind of incontrovertible. Right. They're um, irrespective of whether you believe that there's a, like a, the, the, in, in the kind of the spirituality of the event, the, the events occur. They're incontrovertible. Um, they're reliable um, in terms of uh, or relative to, I think, um, our thoughts and feelings or interior sort of uh, chewing over the events that occur. Um, they're eminently unreliable. Right. Like they're the things that we're closest to. So they're the things that, generally speaking, we have the highest degree of confidence in um, or we, we experience them most acutely, sort of the interior phenomena um, that, uh, that 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 we deal with day in and day out. Uh, but they're they're eminently unreliable, unreliable. Right. Like one day we think one thing, one day we think the next thing. Our opinions in many cases are changing. And it's very rare that our opinions um, sort of codify through. Uh, sufficient data um, to become like knowledge or belief, I guess, belief and then knowledge. Right. So, um, so, but the events, they occur and they're immovable objects. They, they, they generally speaking force you uh, to respond in one way or the other. Um, And and so I think in most cases for most people, um, certainly for people who have my particular set of weaknesses, uh, which uh, tend to kind of fall on the side of reactivity versus proactivity, um, the events that one faces are the the primary catalysts for um, uh, f- for the transition. So, um, I- I- if that answers the question in, in a sort of a very very long winded sort of way, no, it does. Uh, you know, I'll tell you this: we uh, this this show doesn't get into spirituality much, and so uh, you you kind of carved your your distinct perspective on that in in a way that many uh, many guests don't. So, I appreciate the uh, the insight there. You mentioned reactiveness or reactivity, and I would imagine that, I don't know, I wouldn't say symptom, but it's, it's probably a major function of being an agency leader or an agency owner. Do you see your evolution as a leader moving away from reactiveness? Is that the ultimate goal to to start creating space to be more proactive? Um, is that the, is that the ultimate goal here? Yeah. Well, uh, irrespective, I guess of, um, uh, so it's happening. Uh, what I what I will say is that it, it certainly wasn't my goal or my intention. Um, so, uh, but but it's like uh, the the most recent sort of let's say phase transition or cycle transition, the one that's occurring right now in 2020 is sort of requiring it. I think, um, and so by virtue of that, uh, it is the current goal, right? It's the it's the like so, so in in the current kind of cycle or the current phase that is what's happening. I think historically. Um, you know, when I, when I sign on in the morning, um, my calendar is, it's kind of booked, right? Like uh, I know my day is, is planned out for me by whatever the events that have populated my calendar, the week, the days leading up to right now. Um, and, and so historically there's never been the question of 
what am I going to work on today or what am I going to focus on today? Uh, because th that's been dictated for me by the demands of the job, whatever. There's this Here fire. Are the that fires. Yep. Now it's time to put them out. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so we've gotten to a place organizationally where um, the, the putting out of fires, it, it, it doesn't fall onto my plate anymore. Right. So now for the first time in the 12 year history of Salted Stone, when I log on on the morning, generally speaking, I might have one or two hours of my day that are pre-planned as far as here's things that you have to get done today. Here are meetings that, you know, that are on your calendar, but the rest of the time is it's really open-ended. There's it's, it's blue sky, it's green field. It's right. All of these things that, um, that most agency owners are sort of dreaming of, um, in, in, when they're in the trenches, when they're in the weeds and they're on the front lines, right? Very few, uh, agency owners that I've spoken with, um, sort of get to the stage that they're all dreaming about when they're going from fire to fire to fire to fire to fire, which is I'd much rather be working, you know, on the agency than in the agency. But when you get there, it's like, be careful what you wish for, because when you get there, now you have, if you, if you have my particular set of weaknesses and not everybody does, um, but when you get to that place, now it's like, okay, your day is no longer planned out for you. What are you going to do to grow your agency, right? Like, what are you going to do to, 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 to take the next step forward as a leader. Um, and that candidly for me has been far more challenging than any fire that I ever had to put out, right? Because now rather than just responding to stimuli, you have to actually come up with ideas, right? And if you, and I'll keep saying this, but if you have my particular set of weaknesses, right, you, you may, you may run short on ideas from time to time and, right. And, and, uh, or in, in certainly good ones, anyhow, uh, and, uh, and and so that has been um, an interesting um, kind of transition for me to have to go through is building those muscles that historically I've never had to use. Right? Yeah. Just they've never. And I they've would never imagine been you know putting out fires. Right? The reactive approach. You got comfortable and, and confident in doing that because those were the muscles that had to be exercised, and so you had strengths yeah. there. I would say this, regardless of strengths and in, in perceived weaknesses, I would imagine that this idea of evolving as a leader is going to exacerbate the deficiencies or weaknesses, regardless of where they fall. So for you and what your perceived weaknesses are, or the muscles that don't get flexed often, how do you brush up on those skills or, or habits? How do you skill up? How do you improve? So how do you, how do you bake that into your, your own operating system? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, when I was, I'm, I'm 40 now. Um, but when I was, I think 32 or somewhere in that neighborhood, um, and, uh, I, my oldest who's now eight was, uh, a couple years old. Um, and I, like, I remember I, I was generally speaking, like I, I've never been to, I've never been a someone who goes to the gym. I've never really been uh, since high school, very athletic. Um, and I was kind of like throwing her around and, um, and just noticed like I was kind of getting tired, right? Like it was, it was, it was not easy. And, and that to me was a problem, right? Like I should not be, I am too young to be getting like winded or tired or have any sort of difficulty um, messing around with my kids, right? Like I don't want to be, that's not the the vision for my future that I have sort of, you know, as a dad, as a parent, I, I want to be able to have fun with my kids. And, um, and so that was a catalyst for me to, to go to the gym for the first time and, and to start exercising. And, and I remember, um, you know, I got a trainer and, and, and the whole nine yards and, you know, so the first, the first month or so of, of, of going to the gym and me with this trainer, like 
he had to go really like I look back on on the the amount of weight that I was able to say lift at 32 years old um and like from the standpoint now of someone who's been you know going to the gym at least a couple of days a week for the past eight or nine years I'm not a gym rat but I, I try and stay consistent it's like stacking sandbags against the tide right just kind of holding back the inevitable um yeah, right. but like now you know like I'm I, I look back on the amount of weight that I was able to lift then and I'm almost like I'm embarrassed for myself I'm embarrassed for my 32 year old self at kind of like uh, at being that weak. Um, and, uh, and right. Cause I could like, I, I got on the bench press and like, I could lift the bar. Right. So my first, my first reps were, you know, w- with the bar 65 pounds or, or you know, whatever, whatever the case might be. And um, right. And, you know, over the course of time of like working out muscles that had never been worked out before, they got stronger just by virtue of using them. Um, and then, you know, you throw a plate on each side and throw two plates on each side and, Right. And, and now I look at it, I'm like, I'm not the strongest person out there, but it, when I, like I can I can I can lift decent weight. Right. Um, and, and and so I, I, I use that analogously to the process of exercising muscles from a leadership standpoint that haven't been exercised before. Um, and, and I think ultimately, if, if you uh, I don't know if you've ever, ever read um, if you have a background at all in, in any sort of philosophy, but that's where I got my uh, my my undergraduate in um, and just kind of reading uh Aristotle, like really like classic philosophy, which is where I tend to, um, I tend to fall more on the kind of like the metaphysics and than, than the epistemology. But um, like, if you, if you read Aristotle, uh, like his, it, it's, uh, it's a similar methodology for how he describes the process of cultivating either or becoming either like a, a virtuous or a vicious person, right? Like cultivating virtue or cultivating vice. At the end of the day, um, each of these types of dispositions, it, it's a habitual disposition, but the only way that you arrive to the habitual disposition on either end of that kind of spectrum between viciousness and, and virtuousness is by practicing the acts that correspond with either virtue or vice, right? So in other words, you become virtuous by practicing virtue. You become vicious by, by practicing vice. And, and I think ultimately, like you become a more proactive leader by forcing yourself to operate proactively and eventually the muscles that you don't have build up. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I think that that can be applied, um, to any sort of, uh, any example. And I also think, um, of particular, like worth highlighting, um, is, um, I, I, I truly do believe and this kind of co- corresponds back to the general, right. My, 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 my philosophy or perspective around the spirituality of events I truly do believe that you are you are really only responsible in that dialogue, right? Like the events happen, and now you are going to enter into a dialogue uh, through your choices in response to that event. You are truly only responsible for like your choice, right? Like the 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 the, the will. Uh, the, so the human faculty of will, right? Humans, what 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 separates us from every other creature? We have an intellect. Uh, and, and we have a will. We have an intellect that's capable of conceptual thought. We have a will that's capable of choosing a good, a perceived good based on what our intellect identifies, right? And so when I think about like, uh, where is the, the locus of freedom for the human? The locus of freedom for the human exists in the will. It exists in your choice, right? So you choose and then actions may flow from that initial choice and your actions may lead to success or failure. Um, and in the case of having to build up muscles that didn't previously exist, in most cases, at the beginning anyways, your action, your choice is going to lead to actions that fail, 
right? That's just, that's just the way that it is. So uh, I guess really what I'm trying to communicate there is like choose, act, and don't become discouraged when you fail. Simply pick yourself back up, choose again. And that sequential process of like small little baby steps eventually leads to um, like a paradigm shift. And, and, and all of a sudden you are stronger in ways uh, where you were previously weak. So it sounds like baby steps is key here and uh, being okay with starting with just the bar, right? You got you to gotta get the form down before you can add more weight. Unless, yeah, totally. unless you're just naturally, right, like a, a stronger person, right? Like I look at myself more as like um, a snail, right? Like there's, there's snails in life and there are these kind of like thoroughbred racehorses. Everybody's a little bit yeah. different. If you're a thoroughbred, you may be able to, to sprint far distances fast. If you're a snail, there's no point in even trying. You you will you you are destined to fail if your like standard, if your expectations for yourself is that you will keep up with a racehorse, you will simply fail. Uh, if a snail tried to race a horse, the snail would get stepped on, it would get squished, it would die. Right? So if you're a snail like me, then you take small steps uh, and, and you don't expect uh to to get to the finish line uh, anytime soon. Or uh, another analogy that I like to use or metaphor that I like to use in that regard is uh, in most cases, in most circumstances in my life, I sort of feel like I'm almost like a like a lazy kind of uh, overweight pigeon that has one functional wing. And I'm like, well, I have one wing that's broken. I have one wing and I'm constantly flapping, constantly flapping. And all I'm really doing is like moving in circles all the time because I'm flapping this one broken wing and I'm lazy and, and slightly overweight. And then every now and again, this like gust of wind will come up from behind me. And if I just flap my one wing as hard as I can, somehow the wind will carry me 20 to 30 yards downwind. Like, and, and that is how I get to the finish line, right? Like I can't rely on my own strength to get there like some folks can. Some folks who are stronger can rely on their own strength to get to the finish line. For someone like me, right, you, you have to rely on the wind to carry you there. And, you know, I think that opens up a larger conversation into spirit animals, but it's good to know you're the, you're the one winged pigeon. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the one person in the world who has a, a, a fat, lazy pigeon with a broken wing as their spirit animal. Um, Mike, the next question I have for you, just to like pivot over to org charts. Um, I can imagine that evolving as a leader has a direct or indirect, well, probably more direct impact to the way in which you source candidates, you hire candidates, you prioritize the needs for new candidates and new bodies in, in the agency. So how do you handle the hiring process for Salted Stone as a means for evolving as a leader? Yeah, that's a, it's actually a, a, a fun anecdote um, just around that, or whether it's fun or not, it's, it's at least an anecdote um, that is uh, based in, in my own experience uh, at Salted Stone. Um, but I remember it was probably back around 2016, um, sort of dawned on me one day, because between 2012 and 2016, we had sort of the, the tailwinds of, of becoming a HubSpot partner. In 2012, I was still very much the one doing a lot of the work um, and managing a lot of the clients. So I was, at least for certain types of work, I was the one I had the most experience doing paid search, organic search. And um, so that was kind of my domain. And, uh, and then I was also the only one who cared enough about being like decently tempered on client calls that, uh, that I trusted putting on the phone with a client. So I was doing a lot of the client interfacing and, um, and, and still some of the work. Um, and so the process from 2012 to 2016, 
um, involved uh, like kind of hiring uh, production team members to take over some of those very production oriented skill sets. And around 2016, I kind of took a step back or the, the, had the realization, uh, like a little minor epiphany that um, in every single situation where um, where we brought someone aboard to take over something that historically I had been responsible for, the organization was now doing those things better than they had ever been doing them when I was responsible for doing them. And mm-hmm. Uh, and whether that's um, right, whether whether that's more an indictment of, of of my own ability to do things well, or the fact that I had to do many things and there therefore couldn't do any of them well, um, I think is sure. less important than sort of the realization that that was a fact. Right, the fact was the organization was better every time we replaced me with somebody else. Um, and so then, in that moment, uh, I just basically made a list of all of the things that I was still responsible for. Right. So I took my responsibilities one by one, made a list, and then I organized that list in terms of um, what order, like from from my perspective, the order within which I thought that we would wind up hiring people um, to to take over the responsibilities that had been identified on that list. And um, the the last responsibility, the last one that I thought that I would wind up giving up was sales. Um, I thought that I was relatively decent at it. Um, I wasn't. It was, uh, and probably I, I thought it also it would be the hardest one to find someone who could do it. Um, and maybe that says more about, uh, like, again, my weaknesses or my my perspectives. But we're not Salted Stone has never really been very good at marketing or sales uh, itself, right? And uh, and like they probably inherited that from me as the leader, right? Like I, I tend to be more operationally minded um, than I am sales and marketing minded. And, but but anyhow, the the long and the short of it was I expected sales to be the last thing that would be relinquished from the list. Um, uh, and then interestingly, uh, not a week, within a week kind of after having compiled that list. And, you know, so there's all sorts of stuff on there. There's right. Like director of client services, there's operations, there's sales, there's Mark, there's I mean, finance, right. You name it, all the stuff that I'm uh, typically still responsible for and um, or was at that point still responsible for, but Sales was at the bottom, but within a, a week of kind of compiling that list, um, I was uh, someone pinged me on LinkedIn, um, a well-known name uh, in the HubSpot ecosystem. Uh, for those of us who have been around for a while, uh, pinged me um, and um, and basically said, it, yeah, it, he was, and he was uh, at the time um, uh, on the team of, of kind of HubSpot's top partner agency, the top partner agency back in the, the two, two, 2012 uh, period. Um, and he was leaving that, that agency for whatever reason. And so he reached out to me and, uh, and his role at that agency was business development. He was their primary sales guy, um, at least as per him. So, um, so immediately I just kind of like looked at this list that I had just finished compiling where I had assumed sales was going to be the last thing to go. Uh, but again, right, like the, the events communicated something differently, right? Or at least communicated that I had to consider something differently, right? So all of a sudden, right after having compiled that list, here comes a candidate that on paper um, is potentially, like, I I can't imagine a more attractive candidate for us at that stage on paper, right? Because here's HubSpot's top agency at the time, the the business development director at that top agency at the time, um, who is saying, you know, do you want, do you want my services? And, um, and so, you know, from an org chart standpoint, that really was, I think from 2016 
onwards up until very, very recently, that was um, the candidly the process for hiring um, what, what I would call sort of like higher up in the organization was finding ways to replace myself. Um, and uh, obviously, as we scale, we may need more folks on the creative team or more folks on the dev team or more folks on the solutions architecture team. But um, those those weren't really my skill sets anyway. So we have models and budgets for hiring those positions. But for hiring kind of the the, the managerial level positions, the the senior level positions, it was really a function of, of uh, assessing my existing responsibilities um, and then hiring them. And now what's interesting is it's it's transitioned uh, because once I basically effectively replaced myself um, and all of my day-to-day responsibilities through that methodology. Now it's a, it's a similar function, um, but it's really not focused on me anymore. It's focused on those folks who I brought in to replace me. So now the folks who came in to write, like run biz dev or run sales, like yeah. now, now it's like, how do we take things off of their plate? So it's identifying their responsibilities and then hiring down from there. Um, and, uh, and so the similar, it's a similar methodology that, that applies, but it no longer applies to me. Now it applies to folks on the team, right? I don't know, Mike, if we've officially confirmed there, but in regards to, uh, the biz dev candidate, um, a high performer that was initially on the bottom of your priority list, he kind of flipped your, your list and, kind of, you know, made it something to consider at the top. Did you end up making the hire? Oh yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it was a it was a, a process of deliberate. I mean, it was a more expensive hire than any other hire we had made up until that point in time. So I just I didn't know what to do. But what I knew is like I did not want to hear an Eric Pratt. I love you dearly. I did not want to hear that like Eric Pratt hired this guy because like I passed him up. Revenue River jumped on him, and all of a sudden Revenue River has blasted off and has become the you know the top HubSpot partner. I didn't want to hear in Lieberman, I love you too. I didn't want to hear the Square Two hired him, and then boom, Square Two all of a sudden rockets off into the to the ether, right? So, um, so on the one hand, I had this like fear, right? Like I don't want to miss out, and I believe that there's something here. And on the other hand, it's just like the real the the logistical reality of like I don't know if this is the right move. So having exhaustively kind of like uh, exercised my reason, the pros and the cons and not being able to come up with any sort of conclusive uh, decision, I, I flipped a coin um, and uh, and the coin said to hire the guy. So I hired the guy um, and, and can't like it was um, a part of that key kind of 2016 inflection. I thought I was good at sales, right? Like I just finished saying that sales was at the bottom of my list because I thought that I was good at it. Um, at the time, like my retainers, I was selling $1,500 a month, like full service inbound marketing retainers, right? And like, and that was a transition. That was a growth. Like I was proud of having gone from selling no retainers at all and being exclusively project driven to selling $1,500 a month marketing retainers, starting to get some recurring forecastable revenue through the door. Um, this guy came in and, and within six months we had, you know, I don't know, six half a dozen to a dozen $10,000 a month retainers on the roster. Um, it just, it, it completely flipped um, our ability to, uh, how we looked at um, what we were able to do as an agency. Um, so it wound up being a, you know, a, a brilliant hire, not that I made a brilliant decision, simply that it was a brilliant move for the organization overall. Um, and, and ultimately it was determined by a coin flip. Yeah, it's wild that it all came down to a coin flip. But it's like that the lesson here is, well, I think it's an important exercise to list all of the roles and responsibilities that you currently 
act four and then have kind of an initial draft of the list of priorities or the order in which you want to replace those. But you have to be comfortable diverging when certain opportunities shuffle up or shake up what that perceived priority list is. Yeah, I think that's probably an important lesson or takeaway, um, broadly speaking, is um, uh, as a leader, have ideas, have thoughts, have opinions, um, and then absolutely be detached from them, right? Like uh, just be be as detached as possible. Um, just recognize, like I, I, I alluded to this previously, but like your thoughts and your opinions, everybody, your mileage may vary, you may disagree, but um, from my perspective, having lived 40 years and having made more mistakes than, um, than, than, you know, than, than, than wise decisions, um, what I've learned over the course of time is that like my um, assessment of things is um, insofar as I do not have perfect knowledge, uh, subject to imperfection. Um, and there is nothing that I have perfect knowledge regarding. So constantly I am uh, attempting to be mindful of the fact that like what I think um, I need to like sort of rank sort. Uh, how confident I am in, in, in my, in my thoughts and in my perspectives and in my opinions. Um, and, and generally speaking, what that has, has done or the, the, the conclusion, the key takeaway there is, uh, absolutely be attached. Like you have to have some thoughts, you have to have a vision, you have to be moving towards something, uh, but absolutely recognize that you may be wrong. Right. And what you're moving forward towards today may not be what you should be moving towards or will be moving towards tomorrow. And, and that's OK. So I think there's a there's an element of, of detachment from um, your prioritization, your values, your vision um, that is necessary if the agency, if you are going to be able to evolve as an agency and, um, and ultimately put other people in a position to uh, to succeed where where you might not have succeeded um, as as much. I think also one other takeaway that's related um, to that is uh, like uh, it, when I think on the, you know, the, the hindsight, hindsight's 2020, like what, what are things that I wish I had foreseen um, in the process of replacing myself, even when I was detached and even when I allowed things to kind of proceed, like when I entered into that dialogue in a manner that um, what I, I don't know, manifested uh, some measure of humility that allowed me to be adaptable in my perspectives um, the still like one thing that I did a terrible job at, which I'm still trying to do a better job at is, um, is planning for redundancies, right? Like, like if you're replacing yourself, it generally means that you're replacing the, the, the things that you do as an agency leader are typically the most important things in the agency. So if you're replacing yourself, it means that you're replacing, um, you are, you are putting the, the most important responsibilities in the current state of your agency into the custodianship, into the hands of somebody else. Um, and anytime that you do that, so now you have uh, individuals who are responsible for very important things day-to-day, uh, -day, functionally within your agency, um, and they may leave. They may leave on good terms. They may leave on bad terms. They may leave expectedly. They may leave unexpectedly. Uh, but at the end of the day, like no nothing, there, there's an impermanence to any sort of organizational structure. Um, and you, you have to be able to like just plan plan for that plan for redundancies build them in even if you don't have a hundred percent redundancy try and get to 50 60 percent redundancy and always have a roadmap for okay if I if I do need to get to 100 percent replacement like how would I do that how can I shift people organizationally rather than having to hire from without 
do I need to hire from without in order, like you're, you're in a much better situation as an agency owner. If you have a game plan that involves shifting existing personnel into uh, redundant roles, than having to, to hire from outside to plug a hole um, that, that, that appeared unexpectedly, right? There's going to be a lot less friction, a lot less turbulence, um, a, a, a lot less kind of like morale loss on the team overall. If you have a way to fill any hole with existing team members, um, ultimately that involves typically like you're promoting up rather than hiring out and, and you know and, and filling a hole. Yep. Well, I would imagine that yeah, that as you've outlined it, the growth trajectory just it just helps team morale at, at large. But like functionally or operationally, you just need to alleviate or remove singular critical points of failure as you put these business critical responsibilities on on somebody that's not you as the, the agency owner yeah, yeah. That is that's a it great point. yeah i think that's a that's a great um great like great way to phrase it you you want to uh to have as few critical points of failure as possible um in in the way that um most agencies who have finite budget um you know you, you have you have 20 needs and you have budget to fill five of them or whatever the case might be the way that you're typically gonna uh, to be able to, to solve or resolve those critical points of failure is through existing personnel um, Mike, it's always a pleasure talking to you. We're just about out of time, but I have one final question for you. Uh, we try and wrap every episode with this. Uh, what is the weirdest part of agency life? I don't have, I wish I would have watched previous episodes, uh, in to the end, then I would have known that this question was coming. Um, and I, and I could have prepared for it. I think the, the, the conundrum, uh, so I'm shooting from the hip. Uh, but the first thing that jumps to mind... It's what we look for, by the way. We want to shoot from the hip on this. This is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think ultimately the, the 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 one thing that's kind of like been toughest for my noggin to reconcile uh, from 2008 until 2020 is like, you know, agencies, generally speaking, and this is this is not the case for everybody, but for, for a lot of us, it's a, it's a grind, right? Like um, it's a low margin... Um, you're battling every day. Um, it's not always fun. Um, in fact, like a lot of times it's, it's not fun. Um, so the, 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 I don't know, the, 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 the thing that's been like the toughest nut to crack for me or to intellectually reconcile is like, how is it that this assembly of amazingly talented team members, this super talented group of team members that shows up every day, that works hard every day, that wants the best for their clients day in and day out, that takes pride in their work. Like, how is it that 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 um, results in the end in like very meager payout, right? Like it is a lot, it's a lot of squeezing for a little bit of juice, right? And and that for me has been probably the strangest part of uh, of running an agency is man, like we like there's not enough juice in this cup to keep everybody from being thirsty, and they are they are squeezing all day long, yeah. right? So uh, and maybe that just says more about the the particular deficiencies operationally or financially or anything else of Salted Stone. But I know that it's not an uncommon experience from having spoken with a lot of folks in the agency ecosystem. It's a complex juicer for not a super juiceable fruit is what you're saying here. Yeah, that's fair, man. Hey, Mike, uh, we got to wrap it here, but always a pleasure talking to you, my friend. Thanks for jumping in. Thanks for dialing in remote for this. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, you guys are um, 
all of you folks over over at HubSpot amongst my favorite people. You guys have been uh, great, I think, to the entire agency ecosystem. You've enabled so many of us um, to do things that that simply we wouldn't have been able to do without you. So um, I'm happy to be able to contribute my time, and I'm, I'm grateful for the continued opportunity to be a part of the HubSpot partner ecosystem. Awesome, man. Yeah, thanks so much. And for everyone that tuned in for this, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time uh, on Agency Unfiltered.